there, there's going to be a lot of stuff that's difficult about any path. Um, but, you know, find what, what, you know, you think is life-giving, energizing. I think that's easier than saying find your purpose. Like that sounds almost kind of too lofty, too aspirational. But I think a lot of folks can take a step back and say, am I energized by this or is this wearing me out? Yeah. And if you find energy, I would encourage you to go further down that path. Hello, my name is Matt Brose of Lockton. In my role, I consult with employers all around the country related to their employee benefits strategy. We're in conversations all the time about how to attract the best talent and get the best out of their people. Work ethic, integrity, those are all traits of people that pursue excellence and it doesn't even stop there. From the boardroom to the storeroom, we're gonna find out what drives those people. Welcome to the excellence culture. This is gonna be an excellent adventure. Well, welcome to the Excellence Culture. Again, my name is Matt Brost, and I am excited. We're, we're celebrating a couple things today. You're going to see I've got some burn orange, and my guest here has got some burn orange on. This is Levi Smith. He's the CEO of Franklin Building Supply, and we're good long-term friends, so we're celebrating that to be able to get together and just kind of have a conversation. But then we're celebrating a big football game that happened this last weekend, right? It's been a long time. <laughs> If you're a Texas Longhorn fan, since we've really had that sort of yeah. dominant, you know, hang your hat on win. And so in celebration of that and knowing that we have the UT connection um, and burn orange just looks good on video, I mean, <laughs> right. especially when you no, got Dallas yeah. behind you. We're representing up here in North Texas. Yes. Thought, well, I'm going to bring the jersey. Might as well go for number one. I, I think number one ranking. That's it's a what solid, we're going for. safe, safe one. Yeah. I'm just going to kind of choose to believe this year until I'm proven otherwise. So yeah. that's the spot I'm in. But it was a fun game on Saturday. Yeah. Always fun to beat Bama, yeah. uh, no matter what the team is. Yeah. Um, just good to see them lose. But when you see Texas being the uh, victor, that's special. Yeah. Where were you when you watched the game? Were oh, you at so home? you'll appreciate this. So uh, you and I uh, met one another down in Austin. I've been in Texas for most of my life. We'll get into that story. But going on eight years ago, moved up to Idaho. So I watched the game from a uh, wilderness campground where I had just enough cell signal to stream the game and I had, right, I'd brought my projector and a screen. I had it taped up on the side of our trailer and uh, I watched the game uh, in, a, in a sea of pine trees. And wow. so, yeah, so it was actually a, a I mean, that's pretty, pretty hardcore, fantastic yeah. setting. That's pretty good. <laughs> Any Longhorns that are watching, you should have much respect for <laughs> Look, I'm telling you, it was fantastic. I was just, it, you know, surrounded by pine trees, just, you know, uh, had, had, a, had a lovely drink in my hand and, uh, yeah. Just just watch watch the game there. So it was it was a good yeah. setting. That's better than me. But so. I was in a pretty cool place too. So um, so we got to know each other when we were in Austin. Two thousand three, I think, is when I got to know you. Because in two thousand two, I tried to get to know you earlier, but you declined. Oh really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's right. Two thousand three ish. So two thousand two, I left um, Austin to go live in Florida for a little bit to play golf came back to Austin to the church plant that I was involved with, the Austin Stone, and you were heavily involved in the Austin Stone, um, helping get that thing to where it is now today, which is a pretty cool, pretty cool deal. So, um, but we got really close, played a lot of board games together. Yes. What's your favorite board game these days? Just you and I, everyone else watching. (laughs) Our families. Right, Yes, our families. (laughs) Um, what, What board game are you playing these days? 
We have, are you playing a board well, game? Well, we have not played as many board games since we left uh, Austin. So we had, you know, I mean, we sort of laughed about it. There are a group of friends down there. People came in and out of, of you know, um, those groups, but who, you know, we're in a season where we all had, you know, uh, either no kids or really young kids and, you know, put them down on the, you know, on the floor, on a blanket, you know, to, to go to sleep. And, you know, they were uh, asleep right after dinner and then we'd, you know, hang out and play board games. We're not in that season of life anymore. Uh, the children do not just lay down on the floor at, at someone's house that we're at and go to sleep at yeah. seven. Uh, so I think that's, that's changed things, but we still bring them along when we go, you know, camping or out into the wilderness and stuff and, and enjoy doing that, but not quite as uh, big a part of our lives. It sounds like we're really, really pretty, pretty geeky back then. <laughs> we're making it sound like every night. <laughs> we, we did a lot though. <laughs> so I think the Austin Stone connection's kind of interesting. I don't, uh, it, you know, you talk about coming back from Florida, but really, you know, me coming into the Austin Stone, which is also where I met uh, my, my wife and, you know, a lot of, uh, not just uh, in terms of my spouse, but a lot of rich friendships there, y'all's included. But I started getting involved. At that time, there were a lot of very young people involved in this uh, church plant. And so they were looking for any individuals that looked like semi-responsible adults. And so that was the main criteria. But then they had these small groups going on. And I found out that the people that had initially sort of helped lead the small groups had just left. <laughs> and so it was in disarray. <laughs> and so I think you you had left. Yes. <laughs> and so we were leading all the really small our first, you know, sort of uh, introduction um, or first first time sort of working on something was me just cleaning up your mess. <laughs> well, there was really nothing. Like, I remember the very first curriculum of the small groups at the Austin Stone was Purpose Driven Life. Mm -hmm. And people like, don't like Purpose Driven Life. Honestly, it started really good conversations. Sure. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, I picked it up right after that. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was pretty short. Uh, so so we, we started with some, you know, sort of work between us that we yeah. didn't even know was really there. Yeah, and and I, then the relationships formed. So. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, it, only amazing memories. And I do want to honor somebody that we lost a few years ago, Aaron Lemon. Yeah. Amazing guy. Absolutely. Very close friend of both of ours. Um, and uh, kind of a, a, a tra tragic casualty. Um, and uh, Meredith, his wife, um, is, is doing good. We're excited about that. But we have just mutual awesome memories of Aaron and can't wait to see him again one day, right? Yeah, no, agreed. And I, I think, you know, you and I just kind of lightly kept in touch uh, once, you know, life pulled you out of Austin and life pulled us in different directions. We were sort of, you know, knew what was going on, but that was about it. And then uh, when when uh, our, our, our close friend Aaron unexpectedly fell ill and was, um, uh, you know, fighting for his life and, you know, we landed in, in Dallas here, um, you know, after jumping on the, the first plane we could get on, um, you know, you and your wife were gracious and uh, dropping everything and coming and picking us up and uh, taking us straight to the hospital and, and all of us being part of, you know, that, um, you know, uh, you know, really, really, you know, challenging, um, you know, 48 hours. Um, and he, he uh, uh, you know, uh, lost, uh, lost the battle and, um, you know, we lost uh, an inc uh, extremely close friend. Yeah. Um, so uh, th those shared experiences, um, you know, um, are things that also strengthen and 
and oftentimes even form relationships. And, and so I felt like a lot of relationships were also strengthened, you know, uh, oddly enough during that time with people who were in that orbit, but had that shared experience yeah. together. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Well, let's, uh, let's digress a little bit. And um, I want to hear about Lil Levi. Oh, man. Um, so I would love to just kind of go past, present, future a little bit with you. Okay. Um, but then I also, Levi, I've done some research. I've listened to a lot of podcasts that you've been on. And you have got great things to say just about people management, um, excellence among people, and that kind of stuff. So I can't wait to get into that, too. But to start out with, I would love to hear about your upbringing. I would love to, to hear you share some stories, too, because you're a great storyteller. Um, but tell me just kind of a little bit about the, the beginning of Levi. Sure. So I really had an iconic Texan upbringing. So I grew up on a cattle ranch just outside of Austin. Uh, for people familiar with the area, uh, it was really just the Salt Lick, which is a barbecue uh, place, and the ranch I grew up on. That was all of what Driftwood was. And even then, the Salt Lick was a Monday through Friday uh, lunchtime destination for local ranchers when Thurman was still alive, who's the founder of the Salt Lick, and he would come over from his adjacent ranch and he would cook barbecue on what is now the presentation pit uh, at the main Salt Lick location yeah. in Driftwood. And so that's the environment I grew up in. Uh, we lived across the road from the, the offices and show barn that my dad um, was at, you know, so, so much of the day and was able to just uh, jump in the truck with him innumerable times um, as, a, as a young kid uh, to just, you know, ride along with dad and see what dad was doing. Uh, so he would swing by and I was, you know, just there, just basically thumbing a ride, <laughs> you know, and uh, jump in the truck and, and, and hang out with him and the rest of the uh, folks at the ranch there. So that was really my upbringing. Uh, absolutely, um, you know, loved it. High school, because I know, like, you ended up going to the University of Texas for your law degree. Right. So help me just kind of see where how did that evolve to that like yeah. ranch kind of ranch hand grow sure. up to what was your i guess high school education yeah you know so yeah so i'll, I'll connect a few dots and, yeah. and kind of connect a dot on the on the ranching side we just kind of you know told a, a a story there but i think uh you know what what i was doing growing up on the ranch i was just naturally a pretty observant kid i was always interested in learning from what was happening around me and part of what motivated me to do this is going to connect to you know what I was doing in high school and why I ended up in law school um, I learned so much working alongside my dad as a leader he uh, never asked people to do things that he was unwilling to do he worked alongside everybody um, he would show people you know what to do and how to do it and he had extremely high standards he was very attentive to the details and you know then every now and then would make some inextricable mistake like you know saying yes to some 4-h kids but but he wasn't scared to take a risk he wasn't probably. scared to take a risk um, and and he really did genuinely care about people and giving them opportunities but the other thing that i observed about my dad that turned into a a, a, a key insight and motivation for me is my dad really really struggled 
explaining to people why he was doing what he was doing. So he had a difficult time. He would, he would do it with you. Mm-hmm. He would show you by example. He would tell you he was clear about what needed to be done and how it needed to be done. But he had a very difficult time telling you why it needed to be done that way or why he was thinking about it a certain way. And so that went from riding a horse, do do it like I do it, but he couldn't tell you why he's riding a horse the way that he's doing it. He couldn't tell you really, you know, why he was, you know, doing something in a particular way. And for me, what I observed is it really limited in, in many ways his ability to scale a team that was capable of doing things the way that he knew they needed to be done. Because unless he was with them, unless he was present, unless he was watching, unless he was doing the work with us, people didn't understand or know the deeper why. He just couldn't explain himself. You, you know, we referenced, you know, uh, you, you, you know, uh, playing golf. Um, you know, the difference in a really good golf instructor being able to say, well, just swing like this. Yeah. And being able to explain why the swing mechanics would be, you know, better if you do it this way or why this issue with your tempo is affecting, you know, you on the course. Uh, that, that's, a, that's a big difference maker mm-hmm. in terms of being able to equip and empower other people in an instructional context, let alone developing a team. So I became very interested very early in how to solve that problem and how to influence people and help people, as I describe it even today, where people say, well, what's your job day in, day out? I say, my job is to help every individual at Franklin Building Supply, where I'm CEO at right now, to reach their God-given potential. That's my job. I do that for each individual, then collectively we're doing that and we're succeeding as an organization. So my job is to help every individual reach their God-given potential. But I found that I was really interested in the art and the science of leading people well and really addressing the issue that I thought was a gap with how my dad led, uh, which he, he just didn't, he just didn't know. He had, um, didn't have an opportunity to go to, 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 to college and to serve under other leaders. He was, he, he, he kind of, you know, uh, d- developed it on his, on his own and developed so many good things. But anytime we're just kind of, you know, doing something on our own, we're likely to have some gaps. Yeah. And so I think that was a gap I saw. I was very interested in what it would look like to lead with an emphasis on spending time on the why. And so I did a lot of stuff related to leadership in high school. I did a lot of stuff related to leadership in college. By the time I got into college, what I wanted to become was the best possible leader I could be. That was what I was interested in doing. Now, that doesn't fit into a tidy you know, job path or job description or whatever, but that was my aspiration. Um, some people might want to become the best version of this athlete or the best engineer or whatever. I wanted to become the best leader that I could possibly be, and I was interested in the art and science of leadership and really obsessed with it uh, from early college on. And so even in going to law school, I went to law school knowing that I did not want to practice law long term. But I felt like law had more to teach me and to help round out my perspective and uh, my skill set to be the most effective leader as opposed to just going further down the path of, of getting an MBA or something. Yeah. So for me, that why Why that was fit. law, why did law, why did you think law would help that? Yeah, so that a couple of things. I was... I started my first business when I was about 11, filed my first tax return. We had a conversation around the kitchen table about um, it, it, it sort of ended up 
catching my parents by surprise and I earned too much to be a dependent and, you know, learning about tax brackets and, you know, my, my dad's tax bracket was higher than mine and maybe this wasn't a good outcome for the family finances. I was interested in business very early on. Uh, and a lot of that had to do with growing up on the ranch and also uh, the, the owner of the ranch uh, was, I think, um, uh, interesting to me and generous with some of his times and thoughts about um, his, his, you know, background experience as a business person and seeing my dad, you know, run this operation. What interested me about law school is, so I, I knew coming out of undergrad, I had, a, I had a ton to learn about business. There's no question about that. But I didn't think I needed the discipline of uh, an educational program to continue learning about business. Yeah. And so an MBA wasn't as attractive to me in that regard. And I was also concerned that maybe if I went out and worked for two years, I wouldn't, wouldn't actually come back. So law school gave me the opportunity to go straight in after undergrad. But uh, without going too deep in this, basically law schools are kind of split into two broad categories, into theory and practice schools, University of Texas and most of the you know, kind of upper tier um, law schools are what they call theory schools. And they're teaching you a way to think rather than just what the law is. And so, you know, I'm painting with some broad brushes here, but yeah. in terms of what was interesting to me, I thought the actual, you know, uh, knowledge of, of kind of the legal landscape would be helpful. In, in business and navigating a variety of things, but really learning how to hone a way of thinking where what you're doing is you're putting yourself as best as you can in a position in the future mm -hmm. and deciding today what you should do in terms of writing contracts or you know dealing with any type of um, you know uh, legal issue, writing laws themselves, other things. What do you need to do today to take into account what this might look like 10, 15, 20 years from now? And so you're, you're putting yourself in a future state and then backing up and thinking about how that shapes what you do today. And I think at the University of Texas Law School, I was able to just further hone that, that skill set and, and make that part of my repertoire. And I think I was just telling some folks last week, I was meeting with our organization, encouraging them to do something similar. What I find is that most people work from where they're at moving forward. It's very different to work from where you want to be yeah. and move backwards. Mm -hmm. But most people work from where they're at and they move forward. And I encourage folks to think about where they want to be yeah. and to work backwards from that yeah. position. So we can do that individually or you yeah. can do that collectively as an organization. That's really good. Well, I guess with that, because you had, you had a, it seems like you had a pretty good vision um, as you approach college as you approach law school of who you wanted to be, which is awesome. Like, so if you're mentoring somebody who's going into their freshman year of college right now, sure. what would be a piece of advice that you would give that person as they're approaching that season of education? Yeah, I, I think, you know, fi finding what really energizes you is really important. Yeah. So there are lots of things you're gonna have to do in life that just require, you know, sheer discipline, yeah. Um, but, but what really energizes you? And so if you're energized, you know, writing code, if you're energized solving, you know, math problems and en engineering, if you're energized actually, you know, doing a deep dive into philosophy or anatomy or whatever it is, find what, and, and I think even sort of, you know, really sort of calibrating and figuring out, is this life-giving or energizing to me? 
Um, it's not to say that if you pursue that career path right, you're not going to have a lot of moments that just require sheer discipline to do what needs to be done. There are things about any of our roles that aren't are, are, are the funnest part of our job or the most energizing part of our job, but they're responsibilities we bear and we need to do them well. But where do you find energy? Mm -hmm. um, what, what is life-giving? So if you think about reaching your God-given potential, I start with the premise, both for myself and others, that uh, they are created by God. They're given an imprint of things that they're, um, th 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 they're capable of doing or have some unique skill sets or abilities. And part of that you know, sort of journey during your adolescent years and, and getting into, I think, you know, your early 20s and college and stuff is trying to uncover what that is mm -hmm. and then leaning into that. And it may be for some people that doesn't fit with their uh, aspirations in terms of income yeah. or their family expectations or other things, but do they have the courage to go down the path where they find that they get energy and they feel like they have a chance of this being life-giving to them. And I, I think that would be my encouragement to, to any students to figure yeah. out, is this, is this life-giving to you? Or is this an exercise in sheer discipline? Yeah. And I, I, I don't sort of buy into, you know, just, you know, you know, find something you love and you'll never work a day in your life. I kind of think that's a sort of a, a, an easy sort of platitude, but doesn't really mean much in practice. It, there, there's gonna be a lot of stuff that's difficult about any path, um, but, you know, find what, what you know, you think is life-giving, energizing. I think that's easier than saying, find your purpose. Like that sounds almost kind of too lofty, yeah. too aspirational. No, but I think a lot of folks them. can take a step back and say, am I energized by this? Or is this wearing me out? Yeah. And if you find energy, I would encourage you to go further down that path. No, that's really good. That's really good. I work with, um, some of your name is Kim Pacheco. And um, she has been watching uh, these episodes and she said, man, a really good question to ask would be um, what makes you come alive? And I think that you may have already answered it, but I want to just ask you personally, yeah. like what makes you come alive? Well, I go back to my prior answer. I mean, what makes me come alive is putting people in a position day in, day out that helps them reach their God-given potential. Mm -hmm. And I spend, I think, uh, maybe an inordinate amount of time going back to, uh, you know, what I, I shared about my story growing up, explaining the why to people. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the why is about themselves, helping them unpack that. It's not about my why, it's about their why. But going deeper with them to actually understand why is it that we do the things we do, or why is it that you do the things that you do? The what and how that's the easiest thing, but the problem is as soon as I remove myself from that situation, they're paralyzed because, of course, the situation, the dynamics have changed, and they only knew what to do and how to do it if it looked exactly like it did before. Mm -hmm. But if you know the why, now you can take that new dynamic into account and still navigate that situation. I think that's true professionally. That's true personally. So whether you're dealing with an issue with friends or spouses or kids or you know, relatives or whatever the case may be, or you're dealing with you know, situations at work, if you have a deep understanding of your why, why you do or don't do what you do, why other people around you do do or don't do what they do, um, you're in a position to navigate what is always a, a, a changing dynamic or landscape. I mean, I've just, I think, you know, uh, we, we rarely 
deal with the same situation truly over and over again. It's a little different every time. And if you don't have the why, then you, you're, you're gonna stumble in how you, you know, um, navigate that situation. So I'm really energized by and I come alive when I can spend my time helping people reach their potential and really understand the why for me or our organization or the why for themselves. And you know, one of the things I talk about is I encourage leaders to spend what I call an unreasonable amount of time with the people that they want to develop. And what I find in my peer group is that leaders are most often or more often trying to figure out how to spend the least amount of time to get the most results they're looking for with their people. And I think it's the wrong approach with people. So for senior leaders to think about, instead of what's the least amount of time I need to spend in a meeting with Matt, I think I can cover everything we need to in 20 minutes. Yeah. I'm thinking about, is there a way that I could spend three hours with Matt? Yeah. Hmm. And can I fit three hours into the schedule? Can I give that person an unreasonable amount of time which provides space for us to get beyond the what's in the house, yeah. right? All the action items and to-dos mm-hmm. and to get into the deeper whys, whether personally or professionally. And the more that I can help another person understand themselves well, especially if they're a leader, whether, you know, on the org chart or even just of influence, uh, they're going to be more effective and they can replicate and do the same. But it takes a tremendous amount of time. So I challenge other leaders in our organization and in my peer group when I'm around them at different events and other venues you know, to spend an unreasonable amount of time with the people around you who you want to impart the why to, you want to impart your DNA to um, in a way that's helpful for the organization. Don't try to figure out how to do this in the least amount of time necessary. Try to figure out how to organize your schedule so you can spend an unreasonable, and I use that word to be intentionally kind of provocative to say, is that an unreasonable amount of time? And until you cross that threshold, I don't think you've created enough space. If there's a more effective or efficient way to do what I'm talking about, I, I certainly, from my side, feel, feel like I would have discovered. Maybe it's still out there, and I'll discover it later. But you know, having you know done what I'm talking about for you know more than 20 years at this point, the only way I figured out how to get it done is to spend unreasonable amounts of time with the people that matter the most. Well, it's very rare, and that's awesome. I mean, that you do that. I would I would say that I've been in positions where. I've worked for people where there is zero blank space on their calendar. And so you're lucky to get 15 minutes with that person, right? But then I also have worked with people where they're intentional to have time, you know? Um, and it seems like you're, you're likely one of those type of leaders for your employees. Have you, have you run across a situation where you had an employee where their why didn't fit what they're doing or didn't even fit your organization at all? Absolutely. And, and you had to have a hard conversation probably, but it's probably a very meaningful conversation. Like, how do you go about that? You know, I, I, without getting into to, to yeah. details to be, you know, inappropriate, I mean, I had one of those just week before last with an employee that, you know, been with us for almost 25 years. And, and the deeper whys didn't align perfectly anymore. Still a, an absolutely outstanding person, made tremendous, con, you know, tremendous contribution to the organization. But the whys didn't align anymore, and we decided to, um, you know, in a, in a way that um, we felt was respectful and generous, you know, um, move, move on and, and, and allow this individual to do the same. But if there's not alignment around that why and around, you know, for me, culture, 
uh, which I define as what you expect and accept, you know, as an organization. Um, and I think it's true in any group of people. What do you expect and accept? What are all the unwritten sort of rules and, you know, expectations? Um, if there's not alignment there, they may be good in a particular task, but they're not a good fit for the organization anymore. And they're going to have an even more challenging time leading other people down the path you want everyone to go, right? So they're not only, in, in essence, a, a little bit of an obstacle uh, for themselves, but they're now an, an obstacle for other people. Or they, they may not be an obstacle standing in their way, but they can't help them get to where you want them to go because they're not going there themselves. As a leader, you can't take people to places you're not going. Yeah. So you can't lead from the back. You've got to lead from the front. You've got to, you know, be able to articulate vision. You have to be able to explain the why. You have to be able to motivate. You have to provide an environment where there's healthy accountability or what I describe as relationally constructive accountability. Is this relationship better after dealing with the conflict? That's relationally constructive. Um, you have to be able to do that. And if you're not aligned on culture and the why and everything else, even if you're not an obstacle, uh, you're going to be, you know, ineffective in taking people, you know, down that path. Well, let's get back into your story. I'm going to kind of say we're done with the college side. Um, I know that you have essentially been an entrepreneur a lot of your life, correct? Um, you seems like you are a born and nurtured leader because you've led a healthcare company and now a lumberyard. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Two so, engine so right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, which is really cool to me. Um, but I'd like to go ahead and fast forward to now. You are sure. the CEO of Franklin Building Supply um, in Idaho, and. Um, and so what was you coming in, obviously a company that probably had a lot of legacy. You came in 40 years into the company, 40 plus years. When I years. came in, we're celebrating our 40th anniversary as a company. Okay. And, um, and so just bring, bring me into that experience of sure. coming into a company that had a lot of legacy. I'm this new leader. Um, I see that there's some place, some things that need to change, but I also want to steward what's been good. Um, I'd love to kind of get in your head a little bit there. So there may be, uh, you know, a few things I'd hit on there. So I think in any organization, if you're coming in as the, the next leader, no matter the setup, you're standing on the shoulders of people that have come before you. Now, the challenge is sometimes those shoulders are in a deep hole <laughs> and you're having to dig the organization out of that. And it's not that helpful. Uh, and so you're standing on their shoulders. But the problem is, you know, they're 20 feet below ground level. In other organizations, you're standing on the shoulders of people who have developed and built a healthy organization, and they want it to go to the next level, and they know that they need a transition in leadership for that to happen. No, no one's an effective leader in perpetuity. Yeah. Um, so for a variety of reasons, there's a need for a new, a new voice, a new direction, a new vigor, a new whatever the case may be. And so for Franklin, the, there were two founders. One of the founders had moved on um, in, in, in a, you know, several years after the founding of the company. So you know, essentially, um, the, the founder and then his son were the two leaders of the company in two 20-year stints, um, you know, respectively. And so I was the first one coming in to lead the company that was not from the family. 
And it was when we'd also changed our ownership, our ownership structure. So when I came in, you kind of could have hung up a new management and new ownership sign. Yeah. Uh, at the end of 2015, Franklin Building Supply became a 100% employee-owned company. And then I arrived in January 2016. And so one, I think it's really important to recognize the legacy and to be truthful about what that legacy is. And if the legacy is not helpful and you find yourself in a deep hole, you need to be honest with yourself and the organization about that. Yeah. If it's advantageous, you need to be honoring and respectful of that. Uh, one of the things I did when I came in is I went on what I call a listening tour for the first, uh, effectively almost three months. I said next to nothing. Mm -hmm. All I did was listen. I went to each and every location and sat in front of every person I could get um, into a one-on-one -on -one or, or group conversation with. And at that time, um, you know, really got in front of almost every employee in the company. And we're spread across all of Idaho, have a location in Nevada, hundreds of employees today, you know, um, is 600 plus employees. We've got, you know, a lot of, lot, lot of people out there and we're spread out. So at that time we were a little bit smaller, so it was a little bit easier in terms of just headcount, but the locations were still really spread out the same way. And so I spent those first few months on a listening tour before I came back to not only executive leadership team and uh, the gentleman that you know I was going to be succeeding, but also a broader group of sales and operational leaders to share what my observations were. But I listened first. I think one of the other things that I would sort of point out in these kind of three things I'm highlighting here is that I think organizations focus on the wrong person in succession they focus on the successor. Mm -hmm. They put a tremendous amount of resources in finding that person, depending on the size of the organization. They're trying to develop that person. They're trying to put the right, you know, tools and, you know, programs and support and training around them. And I am convinced if you look at situations, whether it's a privately held or publicly held company, and the publicly held companies are usually played out in a way that we can look and observe, the privately held ones, you kind of had to be there. Mm -hmm. But we obsess about the successor, and the key person in a successful uh, transition is the person that's going to relinquish the power, the authority, the identity. Mm -hmm. And if that person is not mature enough, is not ready for that transition, I don't care who the successor is, it won't work. And so I think it's, it should actually kind of be flipped in its emphasis. Yeah. And I say this because I, one, compliment uh, Rick, who I succeeded. His uh, um, father, Dick, had, had been one of the two co-founders of the company. Um, Rick had seen this done well with his dad mm -hmm. and made improvements even on top of that. And how Rick handled this transition of leading a company for 20 years, but then handing over the reins to someone new outside the industry, not from Idaho, not a member of the family, that was the difference maker. And so in any organization that's thinking about succession, whether it's at the CEO level or in other roles, the question I would be asking is, is the person that's relinquishing the power authority and their identity, are they ready for that? Are they mature enough for that? Are they going to do that in a way that's gracious, generous, supportive, healthy? They're the person that's going to make the difference. Yeah. Do you need to find a good successor? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But 
I think honestly that's, and I think this surprises a lot of people when I talk to them about, about this, excuse me, that's the easier thing to do. The harder thing to do is for the person that's in that seat now to willingly with an open hand say this is yours now steward it well and so um, I think Rick did an outstanding job there if he had not it didn't matter who I was Um, I think that's difficult to overcome did Rick have have pretty good support or was he kind of on an island during that process no he 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 did have good support but it's a lot about where he was at as a person and so I have a lot of conversations with peers about succession and I think they're surprised at where that conversation goes because I say do you know that succession is about you yeah like wait a minute we're not talking about me I'm wanting to know how to find the person in my organization or outside my organization that could sit in my seat so no no that's that's the easy part of this yeah you're the hard part where are you at? Are you ready for this? Do you want this? Can you actually do this in a healthy and constructive way? Can you see some of your sacred cows dismantled or reworked? Yeah. You know, things that, you know, it, 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 it really depends on the, the maturity and I think the character yeah. of the individual in the seat right now. And that does not get enough attention. If you look at like how public companies handle this, um, I think it's, it's, it's egregious how, um, little is little attention's paid to who who's who's giving it up and all the attention's paid to who's coming in and when you see that dynamic at work the failure rate is shockingly high well locked in uh with the dunning series and we'll talk about it you know after this but we're, we're going through some secession stuff and it has been done in an excellent way it's just been and an it's awesome so important for an organization like, right for that to yeah. be done well and the more senior the role, the more, you know, potential there is either for great, you know, harm or great benefit in, in how that's done. Yeah. So, you know, I just finished reading um, uh, Bob Iger's biography and, you know, he's, I think, a year or, or so into having to come back into Disney after their, his hand picked and their hand, you know, uh, you know uh, hand developed or, or intensely developed, you know, successor. Uh, didn't work out yeah. and um, I don't know anything you know particular about that situation but again that scenario plays out over and over and over again in public and private companies and, and I think absolutely and it diminishes actual economic value it does I mean it has real consequences and I think what's missing is a lot more attention probably need to be paid to where Bob Iger was at yeah. than where the successor was at and, um, you know, I think maybe Bob, Bob Iger is someone that I look at from afar. Again, don't know anything, you know, in particular uh, or more than anyone else does, but look at from afar and, and respect and admire as a leader in many ways. Uh, but again, that pattern of a, a CEO and a board thinking, oh, we found the right person, but they're not spending enough time thinking about, you know, again, who's, who's giving up all that power, authority, and identity. Um, you just see a, a really high failure rate. And, um, I don't see that as, as good leadership. Well, I knew that I would get some good wisdom from you. I've always known you to, to be somebody that's just, um, you're not scared to look at things differently, um, but it's saturated in wisdom. And so I wanna hear, um, let's talk about people a sure. little bit. And I'd love to just kind of start it out by asking you about some of your philosophies around leading people. 
um, and I just want it to be an open question to you. So yeah. what, are, what are just some philosophies that you have around leading people? So I, I really do believe that people are the difference maker in a business. I mean, maybe if you've got the formulary for the cure to cancer, no matter what your people are, you know, you're going to be successful. But outside of, of that, uh, it, it really is about uh, your people. I think you do win with culture, but I think this is unfortunately something that's really easy for each and every business to say. It, I don't know that you and I could, you know, in the city of Dallas, go, go find a business that, you know, has a, a, a placard up that says people don't matter. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, we want to be clear. We've got great coffee. We could yeah. care less about our people. Um, everybody says this. Yeah. And so there's a dilutive effect to everybody saying this, but what does it actually mean on a day-to-day basis? So one of the kind of key things that I talk with our team about is I believe firmly that the customer experience will never exceed the employee experience. And it's a really important math equation to understand. So the customer experience will never exceed the employee experience. And so what we look at in our business and what I encourage other folks to consider doing is to look at every aspect of their business and say, what is the experience that we want customers to have, right? So list out those things. And then we'll actually do this on a whiteboard, and I'll do this in, in three columns. So list out what are all the things that we want the customer experience to be. And some of that may be aspirational, reputational, you know, stuff that you can, you know, is really tangible, whatever the case may be. You list those things out. This is the desired customer experience for the whole organization, maybe a team, department, service sector, whatever it is. And then skip the middle column, leave that blank, go over to the right side and write down what employee experiences replicate the desired customer experience in your organization. So I'll give a really good, a simple example. So let's say that you're a bank mm-hmm. and when someone comes up to the teller window, you want everybody greeted by name and with a smile. Okay, if they, if they, if it's a repeat, you know, sort of customer, they come in every day to make their deposit, whatever, you want them greeted, hey Matt, good to see you again, a name and a smile. Mm-hmm. My question would be, when everybody walks into that bank in the morning, is every employee greeted by name and with a smile? Yeah. Because it turns out that whether you and I are four or 40, mm-hmm. we are shaped by our environments. And if what we experience every day is that our leaders, our peers come in and say, hey, Matt, good to see you, that they don't have to do anything to actually get you to do the same thing with customers. You're going to intuitively, you'd have to do a lot of mental and emotional gymnastics to not do this. You're going to intuitively simply replicate what you're experiencing every day with your customers. But what I find is that too many businesses have some type of placard up saying, remember to greet everybody by name and smile. Mm -hmm. They're asking people to deliver an experience to customers that they do not deliver Mm -hmm. internally to their employees every day. So that's a simple example of when I I say the customer experience will never exceed the employee experience. I want to connect the dots between those two. And then what I'll do in the middle column is inevitably, whatever we want the customer experience to be, there'll be some gaps with the employee experience. Mm -hmm. And we'll have to think about what do we do to close that gap? What do, what do we change about how we walk into the building in the morning or whatever the case may be 
to deliver that same experience to customers or to employees that we want to deliver to customers. And if you can do it on the employee side, one of the fun things is all this, you know, kind of policing and accountability and all these things that companies put a lot of time and effort into to deliver this customer experience will just start to happen naturally. And they start to happen. It's an overflow. It's genuine. It's heartfelt. It's sincere. It's attentive to people. And so I think it's, to me, it's, it's so interesting when we think about business, we've got a collection of individuals and they're all under the banner of a business, whether it's public, private, or, you know, whatever the case may be. And we just start to do some weird things because we're a business or organization now. And we forget some of the basics, right? So if you were going out for a golf lesson and things weren't going well, I'm really just talking about myself now. Um, You know, so I want to talk about you. So when I'm going out for a golf lesson and things aren't going well, which is not not a hard scenario to imagine, um, there's a reason that, you know, a good golf coach is going to go back and start to look at the basics. How are we gripping the club? What's the stance like, right? Um, Let's not make this more complicated than it needs to be. And if these things are in really good shape, well, then we can build on that. In a business, too often, we just forget that we're dealing with people. Mm -hmm. We're dealing with humanity. We're dealing with people that are often irrational. We're dealing with people that have lots of things going on outside of work. So we talk about, I tell folks, I'm not asking you to cross a threshold and become a different person. I I tell folks, I don't think anyone deserves the unrestrained version of me. (laughs) That's unfair and selfish. But they deserve the genuine and sincere version of me. I shouldn't feel an expectation to be a different person at work than I am in life, let alone leave at the door what's going on in my life to quote unquote, you know, you know, be a, be a pro today. Um, You know, we, we encourage folks to be authentic and genuine, um, to share with their colleagues, their supervisors, what's actually going on, not to just try to put on a good face. Think about how much time we spend at a workplace dealing with things that have nothing to do with work. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know, Matt just now, doesn't seem to care about you know this project anymore and I don't think he gets the point and he doesn't understand how this is going to impact whatever and the real issue is is that something's going on with your kid and it's taken a lot out of you and you and your wife aren't getting good night's sleep you know over the last few weeks and it's you know just uh depleting you you're you're how you think about this project hasn't changed but what we'll tell ourselves in a business environment is this just has to do with work right and so Treat people like people. That sounds it, but we're human beings. Yeah, uh, so why are we trying to pretend that somehow we come together in an office building and we can be something else? We can't. Yeah. So, you know, it, 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 life's difficult enough solving real problems. I don't need to spend a lot of time solving made up ones. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we, we really try to encourage our folks to understand where they and their colleagues are at, what's actually going on. It requires a little bit more vulnerability and uh, transparency in the workplace, and there are appropriate levels for that, to be sure. But let's actually treat people as human beings here, not as robots that put on a particular, you know, um, you know, type of attire today and become something else because we're on the clock. I think that's just naive. So it seems like you're the type of leader that when a job's not getting done, you're probably going to first reflect internally of what aren't we doing to allow the job I'm going to assume that that's the thing that needs to be explored first yeah and there's probably some situations where you know the job's just not getting done Um, but 
it's it, from what I've heard, you know, you talk about before is inputs versus outputs. Yeah. Okay. And it seems like you focus a lot on the inputs. Yes. Um, feel free to kind of share a little bit of that philosophy. I know it lends into everything that we've already talked about, but then I'd like to hear some mechanics of some inputs that you've had a good experience of that, you know, might just be um, easy little inputs that people can learn from. Sure. So. So I think this is another sort of oddity in business where we obsess over the outputs and we want to deliver certain outputs. So I think, you know, I'd I'd certainly raise my hand and say sports metaphors can be overused in business, but they're a familiar context for most people. And so they can be a helpful reference point. So here uh, I'd say, you know, imagine if you're a professional sports team, um, you know, I'm here in Dallas. I was telling you before we started this that, you know, it's been a long while since I've had a uh, a, a great football weekend where both my Longhorns and the Cowboys won. So, um, you know, imagine the Cowboys only caring about wins and losses. Mm-hmm. They don't practice. They don't do drills. They don't work out. They just show up on Sunday and demand a victory. That doesn't, I think maybe they've actually kind of done something like that yeah. before. Maybe that explains <laughs> some of the, yeah. Sounds like Jerry. Right, it sounds a, it sounds a little bit like, but... <laughs> That, all of us would recognize that, that that's not going to lead to success. Mm-hmm. But in business, we oftentimes do something pretty similar. Mm-hmm. We just focus on the outputs. And so what I you know, kind of preach in our organization is we obsess about the inputs. So I want to know what the practice is like. I want to know how we're handling nutrition, what type of weights we're lifting, you know, what the scrimmages are like, how we're, you know, doing all the work leading up to the moment that we're actually performing. That's going to drive our performance. That's going to take care of the output, mm-hmm. but obsess about the inputs. And there are a lot of businesses that do a great job of this, I think, but that you obsess about the inputs. It's just, again, peculiar that in a business context, even though I think we would all take a step back and affirm that we should obsess about the inputs and that's what's really going to matter. And my example about the Cowboys, yeah, that would be crazy if that's what they did. All of a sudden we ride an elevator, you know, up in an office tower with our business attire on. And that's essentially what we do. We just focus on the outputs. We're not obsessing about the inputs. So, you know, really getting into the weeds and getting your hands dirty with your team about what are we doing on a day-to-day basis to actually equip our people with the things that they need, to train them, support them, provide the right accountability, provide them the right coworkers to the left and right, Uh, give them supervisors that are actually adding value instead of just, you know, being someone that's perceived in so many organizations as, you know, somebody's just paid a little bit more to do less work. so, you know, really looking at, for us, what are all those inputs that end up in our business, determining the, the quality of an output, which is dropping off, you know, load of material at a job site so, you know, everyone in the trades can continue building a home. That's often our output. We have manufacturing and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and retail and install as well. But, you know, that's, that's really an output. Well, let's, let's and again, in a business, what I find is even let's talk about like KPIs and other things, right? So, um, Businesses will, you know, want to, have, you know, I think one of the just absolutely most ridiculous things that people say in business is what, what gets measured gets done. Um, you and I do a lot of things that don't get measured that matter a whole lot more than business. Um, so it's just this kind of story we're telling ourselves, you know, every day. Parenthood, um, right. marriage. Yeah. So yeah. We, we, don't, we don't measure those things in a quantitative way. Uh, and, and, and that's the only reason we're attentive to them. We're attentive to those things because they matter to us. Yeah. The consequences matter. Mm-hmm. 
the people matter, right? And if you can bring that into your business, uh, but if you don't have that in your business, you're just having to measure all the outputs. So even the KPIs, all the KPIs in most businesses are focused on outputs. Yeah. They're not measuring the inputs. They're measuring the outputs. So now where's the emphasis in the organization? You need to do both to be sure. But my point is, you know, really obsess about the inputs. The inputs will drive the desired outputs in the, in the organization. Um, and I think you've got to get comfortable too with inputs that aren't all quantitative by nature. A lot of them are qualitative. And I find again, in a business, a lot of business leaders, or you talk to a lot of people maybe in HR context, they're uncomfortable with qualitative measures. So if I can't write down an objective number here, I don't want to deal with it because this is messy. This has to do with people and we're in business here. Like, but, I, but I thought you just said that people were the most important thing in your business. Yeah. But now we're dealing with people. It just doesn't fit on a spreadsheet. It doesn't fit <laughs> on a spreadsheet, right? Uh, the qualitative issues yeah. are more often than not, particularly on the input side, the bigger you know, uh, op opportunities and the things that need more attention and focus. And so I think as business leaders or in an HR department or whatever your context, you've got to get really comfortable with the qualitative side of assessing people, of evaluating where people are at, of investing in people. And again, in business, the gravitational pull is output KPIs, quantitative measures, um, what doesn't get measured doesn't get done or does get measured does get done. Like we just, like, you know what, when we step foot in this office building, we're not people anymore. We're gonna say we're people, but we're not actually people. We're gonna build an entire structure that's not built for people, and then wonder why this isn't working the way that we want it to. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's an opportunity and a, and a need for every leader to take a step back and say, have I created a structure, an environment, and a culture that is actually disconnected from the realities of humanity and what the day-to-day -day life is like for my people. And it's not just work, it's what's going outside of work. And there's, people are irrational. There's a, a complex mix of, you know, um, uh, you, know uh, you know, motivations and emotions and, you know, dynamics and politics and all these sorts of things. It's a mess. Yeah. Do you want to get into the mess as a leader? Or do you want to just say, you know what, that's messy. So I'm just gonna pretend that people are robots clothed in human skin, and at least while we're in this office building, we're gonna interact with one another like we're, you know, yeah. um, in, in a way that we don't outside of this building. And I think that's, yeah. um, that, that's ineffective. <laughs> yeah. Well, for me, like there's, you know, with what I do, there's kind of three main areas that we have influence on. It's cost, service, and people. And when I talk about the people side, it might be a, a smaller organization, it might be a large organization. The conversation starts with, don't underestimate the influence that you have on the lives of your people. They're likely spending more time with you than they are with their families. Right. Like we have to take the people side seriously. And I think what you're saying is that when you take that people side as seriously as you do, then those people come to work excited to work. They enjoy work. Work can be even a sanctuary for them, right. you know? Well, we and talk then about what comes out of that is just this unbelievable customer experience too. Yeah, so I, I talk about we want people to leave work in better condition than they arrived. Yeah. 
most people's experience in the workplace, if we want to be honest with one another for a second here, is that work is depleting. They leave the day in worse condition than they arrived. They feel undervalued, underappreciated. They had to deal with abuse from somebody. They're under-resourced. They're not trained adequately. They don't have the right people to the left and right of them. And oh, by the way, they're not the ones that hired those people or make decisions about firing them either. They have a supervisor that's a joke, right? I mean, these are real experiences that people have, whether we're talking about jobs in an office tower like this, looking over the city, or somebody working on one of the construction sites down below like I deal with all day long. Um, you know, that, that's the reality of so many people in the workplace. And so our desire, and we certainly, you know, I'm not naive to the fact that we don't execute on this 100% of the time. We have, we, we, we fail with the best yeah. of them. Um, but our, 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 my expectation and what I hold our leaders accountable to is to build and maintain an environment where people leave in better condition than they arrived. And so that flip, thinking about how work should be life-giving, work should um, motivate people, work should encourage people, right? And this is not about being, you know, people be, oh, that sounds kind of soft. And I said, well, because you don't want to deal with the mess of humanity, you've become really hard. Yeah. And so your, your criticism of this technique is just because you don't have an, enough of a, you know, tool set to actually engage in this, or you don't like dealing with the mess of humanity, but that's who's showing up at your workplace every day. Yeah. So how are you leading them well? And oh, leading them through fear and you know, um, uh, you know, a, well, a culture of you know, um, you know, fear and other things that kind of you know uh, ripple out from that. Like all you are doing is assembling a group of people who have no other options in life, mm-hmm. who are willing to put up with this. And I will go against that team every day of the week. Mm-hmm. Right, because that team is not going to perform as well as my team. So I think that's a limitation of that leader. So if someone's looking at this and saying, well, that sounds kind of soft, again, this is just about people. This is about the mess of humanity. This is about the complex mix of things going on in your work environment, whether you lead a team of 10 or a team of 1,000 or whatever it is. You know, this is going on, whether you want it to be going on or not. This is just life. Life is messy. And so how do you engage in that as a leader? And can you flip the script and instead of trying to minimize how much harm you do to people when they come in every day, you flip it to the other side and you say, how much good can we do? One of the things I talk about with our team too is this concept that I described as max extraction or max contribution. And in a max extraction environment, so uh, I was in uh, uh, DC one time visiting a friend of mine from law school and we were at the Department of Labor. Okay, uh, she worked for the Department of Labor at the time. So, you know, this is this is, you know, the headquarters for you know the the um, the department that you know issues all the rules and regulations that we're all you know uh, obliged to you know uh, be attentive to, and so they're committed to doing this perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, here's this government office building, and when five o'clock hits. I mean, this office building dumps out. I mean, people are not there a minute later. Mm -hmm. And what I find is that people in private business will look at that and they're like, oh my gosh, I mean, yeah, that's, that's what's wrong with government work. But what I challenged them to think about is what does the morning there look like? The morning is that if somebody shows up early, they don't allow them to clock in. 
They only allow them to clock in exactly at nine o'clock. And if they clock in at 9.01, they're going to write them up. Well, what do you think they're going to do at 5 o'clock now, if that's their experience in the morning? I showed up at 9.01, and I'm getting penalized. I'm going to make sure you don't get an extra minute from me when the day's done. Yeah. So those are linked. Yeah. But we just see the afternoon and tell ourselves, mm-hmm. oh, I, you know, that, that's, that's a typical government worker. Well, why don't you show up in the morning and watch how they're treated in the morning? And so whether we think about, you know, some government uh, departments, whether state or federal or some businesses that we've all probably had experiences with, you can feel a max extraction environment, which is I don't trust you. I'm trying to get everything I can from you. Your time is mine. I'm renting you for today and I will make sure that I get everything I should out of you and you don't cheat me out of a dime. That's the environment they operate in. That is max extraction. So what is the employee going to do if that's the type of environment they work in? They're also going to try to extract as much from you as you are from them. They don't trust you. They're going to make sure that you don't get an extra dime from them. All the things. And so it's a quid pro quo. You can flip to the other side, which is what we talk about being a max contribution environment. And what we try to do when we talk, you know, give languages in our organization is how can we get into a giving contest with our employees where we're trying to outgive them? Mm-hmm. We're trying to be generous towards them. Abundance. We're trying to make assumptions in their favor. We're assuming best intent. Now, we still have to deal with, yep. absolutely, do we have employees that don't show up on time and those type of things? You've got to deal with that. And again, in a relationally constructive way, and I think accountability, there's anything I can look at at an organization to assess how healthy their culture is, is how well they handle accountability. Is it destructive or is it constructive? You need accountability. You need people to perform. This is a business. We're here to make money, just like a sports team's trying to pile up, you know, W's instead of, you know, uh, losses. But, you know, the issue is, do you create an environment where you actually understand them as a person, you treat them as a human being. You're trying to figure out how to outgive to your uh, point. You know, be a bu- you know have a have a culture of abundance. And you know, um, and what you'll see is employees also responding kind to that environment. Mm-hmm. And so now you desperately want them to stay on the job site for an extra 20 minutes past their normal, you know, end of day to get the job done at that job site. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're generous to them in the morning, they'll be generous to you in the afternoon. If you understood why that morning they called in and said, hey, I'm going to be running about 20 minutes late. Here's what happened with my you know, kid. Transportation at school fell apart. I think, you know, my wife and I have been separated for a while. Like, if that's the conversation you just had and this person doesn't have, you know, a pattern, like I'd say there's a difference between problems and patterns. As yeah. soon as we got a pattern, that's a whole different issue, yeah. right? That's a problem that person has. Okay. Hey, appreciate you giving me a call, giving me a heads up. We'll cover you for these next 20 minutes. What do you think that person's going to do at the end of the day? whether today or later this week or next month. Mm-hmm. They're going to give you that extra time. They're going to put in the extra effort. In a max extraction environment, again, they're just, they're just responding to how you treat them. Yeah. And so be careful when you're criticizing everybody walking at the door at 5. Think about how you handle them when they walk in the yeah. door at 9. That's and so, the input piece. absolutely. So, I, I, you know, we talk about this difference between a max extraction and max contribution. And when we talk about having a people-centric business, I think if you can develop and maintain a max contribution environment, um, you're going to, to get more of what people can bring to the table every day. So, you know, something else kind of related to that is you're talking about just kind of how we think about people. Um, I, I think that 
most employees also kind of come to work bringing less than their full potential to the table every day because they have to save a little bit to protect themselves from how the organization or the people around them may take advantage of them. They have to be on guard. Mm -hmm. They can't be naive about how, you know, the politics are playing out and is this person going to stab them in the back and, you know, all these different things. And then they've got life going on. So I think the average employee, this is not a scientific study. This is just, you know, my sort of uh, assessment of observing it's probably better uh, a lot of business. Then. Right. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, we joke in the business. I'm pretty good at back of the napkin math. Like, well, I'll be talking with my CFO and I've done a back of the napkin math calculation and it's like whatever the number is like 18.2 percent. And he comes up with 18.3. You know? So uh, I so I have a pretty good track record with back of the napkin math, but I'm not sure that this fits. But, you know, I think most employees are only bringing about two thirds to maybe 75 percent of what they could to the job every day. When you think about just engagement, energy, um, you know, all, all the things we want to see in a healthy workplace or team. And so I'm thinking about what's standing in the way of bringing all that other stuff to the table. If you're in an environment where you feel like people are looking out for you rather than you having to look out for yourself, if you're in an environment where trust is high, if you're in an environment with you know, good people to the left and right of you, if you're in an environment where the supervisors and managers are not a joke, if you're in an environment that demands accountability and performance, you know, those are things that allow you to bring more of yourself to the table every day and to contribute more because you don't have to hold as much back to be on guard against, you know, the organization working against you or you getting taken advantage of or, you know, whatever else is kind of going on behind the scenes. So I think a lot of people are, are leaving a lot on the table because they don't feel like they can fully lean in. And you can imagine this in a relationship, right? What does a marriage look like if the partners don't feel like they can be all in on the marriage? Well, that's a marriage that's on a path towards ending. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they can't both be all in. They can't extend full trust. Uh, they can't be fully vulnerable with their partner. They're not going to get everything out of that relationship and marriage that they could get. It might be okay. It might be functional, but it's not what it could be. Mm-hmm. And again, it's not that different in a work environment. If they're holding a lot back, they're only telling you part of the story, they're only letting you in a little bit, they're only known to a few, you know, there's no trust, you know, that's all stuff that's, you know, they're they're leaving off the table. So now let's apply some math. So business people love the math part. So if, you know, you look at your workforce, you got 100 people, and let's be generous. Let's say that they're bringing 75% of what they could to the table. Now, 25% on a daily basis you're not tapping into. So you got 100 people, think about it like you're paying an extra 25 people a day to cover for the fact that you're only getting, you're only tapping into 75% of what people could bring to the table instead of 100. I think 100's, you know, extremely difficult to get to. But I think you can get into the, you know, high 80s or 90s. Mm -hmm. Um, We're always going to have stuff going on outside of work. We can never be fully present in the way that we, you know, think we we, we are. Um, But you can get into 80s or 90s. Those are real dollars. You're actually paying for additional labor because you haven't created an environment that allows people to bring themselves fully to the workplace and to be fully engaged. And so, you know, there are lots of studies out there looking at this a lot of different ways, showing the cost of, you know, what, you know, frequently be described as disengagement. I think it's real, um, but I think to me, it it goes squarely on the shoulders of whoever's in that you know, top leadership seat, whatever the title is, CEO of most companies, um, they're the keeper of the culture. Yeah. 
the business is delivering the results that it's designed to deliver and you're the designer. Yeah. There's no one else to blame. Do you feel like you can be a better designer being in a privately held company? I do feel like I have more flexibility. So early in my career, I decided that I wasn't really interested in going, you know, um, um, down the path of, um, you know, leading a public company or, or getting in that sort of position. Um, there's some advantages uh, with a public company, but I think for me in terms of what's a fit and going back to your earlier conversation about what's life-giving, yeah. I, I do not enjoy the quarterly pace, yeah. which requires public companies to be you know, a little bit more focused on the short term than the long term. I'm very long term oriented uh, with respect to development of our people and the development and progress of our organization. So I tend to think in years and decades, yep. not months and calendar quarters. So it's a better fit for me. And I have some additional flexibility there you know, with a private company and yep. all the more with a 100% employee owned company. Uh, you know, it's, it's an opportunity uh, where I, I'm not I'm not challenging and motivating people to uh, reach their potential individually, and then we reach our potential as an organization, so that I or someone else can reap, you know, uh, some windfall benefits from that, uh, or some shareholders that they've never even met before. Yeah. Uh, I'm able to tell our folks with conviction and sincerity that they will be the beneficiaries yeah. because they are uh, the the owners of the company, and so I think that's also a, a significant structural advantage for us. That's great, man. I think we've we've gone to you know, a lot of really good places. Um, you know, I would love to just kind of start wrapping it up and I'd, I'd like to hear where your mind and heart is 10, 20 years from now for Franklin Building Supply for you. Sure. Um, what's the future looking like? Yeah, I don't think my crystal ball is better than anybody else's. Mine's as broken as everyone's is. Um, but I, some major themes that I think we're focused on, particularly in our industry, um, we really do have a housing crisis in the U.S. Mm-hmm. We are undersupplied on housing. Um, we have a huge affordability problem. And so we're in this industry and we're part of uh, helping homes get built in communities that we live and operate in all day long. And so um, I view that as an opportunity and an obligation. And so I'm engaged in some things in our community and across the industry to try to you know, help figure out how do we unlock some additional kind of innovation and creativity uh, and new solutions, yeah. right, to be able to, to, to be part of the solution. Yeah. Uh, and I'm uh, a big believer in, you know, shouldn't, shouldn't be lamenting or complaining about something that you're not willing to, you know, uh, be part of solving. And, um, you know, so, so that for me is something that I'm really interested in as we look at the next kind of 10, 15 years. Uh, the other big theme for me is that I, I really do believe that the organization's who get the people piece right, right? And it's, this is not a platitude. This is not a placard. This is about the, the day-to-day work, all those inputs, having the culture, the environment, the leadership that really does build an organization where people can bring their full selves to bear each and every day and contribute their best work and reach their, again, as I describe it, God-given potential. The organizations that do that over the next 10 to 15 years will be the winners. Yeah. And so I think when you look at how for, you know, basically a generation now, we've been um, 
below the replacement rate in terms of birth rate in the U.S. We're below two. It's like a, a basic you know, requirement of humanity to be able to replace yourself. Somehow we're failing at that. Uh, but we're, you know, we're below two. You look at you know, what a mess immigration is. You look at the very tail end of the baby boomers uh, you know, wrapping up retirement right now. There is a real uh, scarcity of labor. And again, I think the best organizations are going to attract the best labor. And other organizations that aren't attentive to this, that don't have the right leadership, the right focus, uh, the right emphasis on this, they're going to be left with a labor force that uh, is just not very competitive. Um, again, no different than just, you know, kind of pulling two teams together on a schoolyard playground. If you've got all the better athletes, everybody's bigger, stronger, faster, you're going to win the game. And so in the same way here in a business context, I think if you've got um, a, a better pool uh, for people that have the best potential or the most motivated uh, or interested in working with the best people, no matter your industry or context, again, from construction all the way to the top of a tower, whatever that context is, whoever um, you know, wins on the people side of business, I think will um, have a huge competitive advantage over the next 10 to 15 years. I think that's been emerging for some time now, but we're kind of in crunch time. Yeah. Um, and I think there's some, some folks that don't really see that coming with as much clarity as they should, yeah. that uh, this is a huge issue. And I'm, I'm a big fan. While I want to use some of what I'm talking about today as a competitive advantage, what I'm really motivated by is challenging other, you know, one of my key motivations is challenging other leaders and organizations to do the same because yeah. I want the workplace to be dramatically better um, for a lot more people. Yeah. And I think uh, from a faith standpoint for me, uh, from my early childhood and other things that drew me towards leadership, I can't just want that for my own organization. Um, I, I, I genuinely and sincerely want that for every organization and I hope that more people um, you know, really uh, look at what they could do to, to reshape how they operate and, and their culture and how they think about people. Uh, to create exceptional workplaces, yeah. so I think we we do, you know, um, all win if that's if that's the case. This isn't something where it's like, well, I've got some little you know uh, secret over here, and I just want to hoard it. I don't think, uh, in in my view, I don't think that's um, fair, healthy, or appropriate. And um, you know, I, I know what we're doing, and we're continuing to march down this path, and I'm happy to hopefully, um, you know. In a, in, a, in a way that uh, is approachable, challenge other people to consider doing the same yeah. and provide them a little bit of, you know, um, you know, resourcing and equipping to maybe go down that path. So. Yeah, I love it, man. I mean, the world's only going to get harder to for our people, right? Yeah. And, and I think engaging people, getting people to bring their best selves to the workplace is only going to get harder. And so thank you so much for your abundant conversation today that a lot of people are going to be able to learn from. Um, and I mean, I can't wait for everybody to listen to this and I really appreciate the time, man. Yeah, this was an absolute blast. I, uh, appreciate the, uh, uh, the, the good excuse to just, uh, have a conversation and burn orange and, uh, <laughs> no, it's pretty know, good. obnoxious for fans of every other sort of team out there. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I, uh, appreciate that you're doing this, sitting down with a variety of people, helping get their stories out there and to share, um, you know, I think good actionable uh, content with folks, so I uh, appreciate you being willing to sit down and, and having me uh, here today. So, awesome, thank you. man. Well, welcome to the excellence culture. Okay, thanks. All right.